there, Cramaholics, and it's your host, Kinsey, bringing you this week's episode of Missing Mondays. Missing Mondays was a segment that was created by Holly and I to help keep missing persons' name and information in the media to aid in their return home the best that we can. 90,000 people in the U.S. are missing at any given time. While some are found alive or deceased, the majority are still missing today. Typically on our Missing Mondays episode, we cover somebody who's not really been heard of or a case that's getting little attention. However, I had one of our listeners, Tina Bland, suggest that I cover the case of the Springfield Three. Although the Springfield Three is a more highly profiled case, the women are still missing and have not yet come home. So it is our mission to make sure that their story keeps getting heard until the day that they are brought home. If you're not familiar with the case of the Springfield Three, it is three women who went missing from Springfield, Missouri in 1992. The three women are Susie Streeter, who was 19, Stacy McCall, who was just 18, and Cheryl Lovett, Susie's mom, who was 47 at the time of their disappearance. The women went missing on June 7, 1992, just shortly after Susie and Stacy's high school graduation on June 6, 1992 at Kickapoo High School. After high school, Susie had big plans to be a hairdresser, just like her mother, Cheryl. According to an interview by Stacy's older brother, Bart, on Investigation Discovery, he stated that his little sister, Susie, wanted to be just like Cheryl. He said that they had a very close bond, and she looked up to her. And so that's why she decided to go to cosmetology school to be a hairdresser. Susie's best friend, Stacy McCall, had different plans. She had planned on going to Missouri State University with their mutual friend, Janelle Kirby. The two wanted to join a sorority when they got there. Cheryl worked as a hairdresser, and she was newly divorced prior to their disappearance. Cheryl had moved out of her home that she had with her husband, and she moved her and Susie into a small home there in Springfield. Everybody had stated that this home was not very lavish like their other home, but they all thought that Cheryl was likely to renovate this home and then be able to flip it to move her and Susie into a bigger home. On June 6, 1992, was Susie and Stacy's high school graduation. It was being held at Missouri State University. According to everyone's interview on Investigation Discovery, this was just a really happy, cheerful day. As any other family member would be, they were super proud of Stacy and Susie for graduating high school. Nothing seemed off to them. The girls had even planned a trip to Branson, Missouri to celebrate their high school graduation. Kickapoo High School did have a party planned for all the students after graduation that night on the 6th. The school had planned a lock-in where they had asked all the students to come and sign a pledge saying that they were not going to drink and that they were going to stay at the high school until the next morning at 8 a.m. However, Susie and Stacy had other plans of their own. That was not something that they wanted to do. The girls would end up attending a party that was held at Janelle's neighbor's house. The girls had been partying and hanging out with their friends and they also had plans to go and stay at a hotel in Branson, which was 30 miles away from Springfield. Janelle, Susie, and Stacy told their parents that they were going to leave this party at Janelle's neighbor's house and drive down to Branson. Stacy's mom was just not happy about this plan at all whatsoever. She did not like the thought of three young girls staying at a hotel by themselves, but the girls felt that they did not want to wake up the next day after hanging out all night, 
and take the 30-minute drive into Branson to go to the water park like they had planned. So Stacy's mom said, okay, that's fine. Just please be checking in with me throughout the night. However, the girls decided not to drive to Branson that evening and stay at the hotel due to the fact that they had been up all night hanging out with their friends. Janelle ends up telling Stacy and Susie that they can go ahead and stay at her house at night and the girls would just get up together in the morning and head out to Branson. Like Stacy's mom had asked, she ends up giving her a call to let her know that they had changed the plans and this ends up just giving Stacy's mom a huge relief knowing that they were not going to be in a hotel alone that night. However, when they get to Janelle's house, her parents tell her that Susie and Stacy are not going to be able to stay there because they had lots of family members come into town for her graduation. Janelle apologizes to them, but the girls say, it's no big deal, we'll just go stay the night at Susie's house, we'll call you in the morning to head out. Susie and Stacy end up leaving to go back to Susie's house around 2 a.m. that morning. Susie's mom, Cheryl, was home that entire evening by herself. According to friends and family who had talked to Cheryl that night, she had plans of staying home and working on some projects around the house. When Stacy and Susie left Janelle's house, she had no idea that this would be the very last time that she ever saw the girls again. The next morning when Janelle woke up, she tries to call Susie at her house to find out what time her and the girls are planning on leaving. After a few unsuccessful phone calls, Janelle decides just to go over to the house with her boyfriend Mike, who also had planned on going with them to Branson to the water park that day. When Janelle and Mike arrived at the house, they stated on investigation discovery that nothing seemed off. There were three cars in the driveway and they belonged to Susie, Stacy, and Cheryl, so they just assumed that the girls were inside. When they got up to the front porch, they noticed that, that there was glass laying on the ground. The glass that was on the ground belonged to the glass case around the porch light bulb. Janelle stated in her interview on Investigation Discovery that Mike was just trying to be nice so he cleaned up the glass and then they went inside. Upon entering the home, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. The living room TV was on and they walked around and saw the beds had been slept in. They went into Susie's bathroom. And they ended up finding used makeup wipes and the girls' jewelry that they had wore the night before. But what seemed really off to Janelle was that Cheryl's dog was left behind at the home with nobody there. According to friends and family, this was a dog that just never was left alone. The puppy was always with Cheryl or Susie. She also stated that the dog was very anxious at the time, which was also out of the ordinary for this dog. Another thing that Janelle noticed that was just really out of the ordinary for Susie, Stacy, and Cheryl was that the girls' cigarettes and their lighters were left behind. Friends and family again stated that it was not like any of them to leave behind their cigarettes. Wherever they were, the girls had them with them. Even though some things felt off, Janelle really wasn't sure where they went and just kind of assumed that maybe Susie and Stacy had left for Branson without them. So they decided to go ahead and leave the home. As Janelle and Mike were leaving the home, the phone rang. Janelle picks up the phone, hoping that it's someone on the other line that can tell them where Susie and Stacy were. But very shockingly, it ends up being a man, an unidentified man, who makes very sexual remarks to Janelle. Janelle, in shock and disgust, ends up hanging up the phone, but this guy ends up calling back a second time, making more sexual remarks. It kind of makes me wonder if whoever made this phone call 
was watching the house and knew that Janelle and Mike had entered the home. Even though the phone call was kind of unsettling to Janelle and Mike, the two didn't really think too much of it and just assumed that somebody was prank calling the home and the two decided to go on and head to Branson, Missouri to the water park. Later that evening, nobody had still heard from Cheryl, Stacy, or Susie. Stacy's mom had called over to Janelle's home looking for her daughter, but Janelle's sister stated that the girls did not end up staying the night there and they had stayed at Susie's. This really upset Stacy's mom because she was told to check in with her and let her know what her plans were. And what bothered her even more is the fact that because Susie and her mom Cheryl had just moved into their new home, she did not have Susie's home number. Even though this really upset Stacy's mom, she tried to just put it behind her due to the fact that Stacy's mom was at a bridal shop in town with Stacy's sister who was soon to be married. She just wanted to enjoy the day with her and watch her try on her dresses. However, after they got done with that, and a few more hours went by, everybody had realized it had been a whole 15 hours since anybody had seen or heard from Cheryl, Stacy, and Susie. Stacy's mom at this point is getting really frantic and she decides to go over to Susie's home to see if she can find Stacy. When she gets there, she sees the cars in the driveway, she knocks on the door, but nobody answers. So she decides to just go ahead and go on it. In her interview on Investigation Discovery, she states that she felt weird about just entering the home, but she had to find her daughter. She says that when she enters the home, she saw that the TV was on, which was the same thing for Janelle and Mike, but she happened to mention that the TV in the living room was on static, so it's not like anybody would have been watching it. The further she gets into the home, she sees the same exact things that Janelle and Mike saw. But being that this is Stacy's mom, she gets really frantic and worried that something bad has happened to her daughter and her friend and her mother. Feeling really scared and worried for her daughter, she decides to go ahead and file a missing persons report. Given that it was late in the evening, the police asked her mom to go ahead and come by the police station the next morning. When she arrives at the police station the next morning, they ended up asking for Stacy's dental records right away, which left her with a really bad feeling in her stomach. She kind of felt like, why would they be asking for her dental records if they didn't think she was already dead? So this put her into just quick panic mode, trying to figure out anything she could do to help find her daughter. She ended up putting missing persons flyers together for Stacy, Susie, and Cheryl. With the help of the community, these flyers end up getting passed out statewide pretty quickly, which ends up getting the attention of the media. Right away, their story was all over the country. While Stacy's mom was busy handing out flyers, law enforcement began to put together a timeline, and they determined sometime between 2 a.m. and 8 a.m. is when something really bad happened to Susie, Cheryl, and Stacy. Law enforcement did go over to Cheryl's house to try and collect any evidence that they could from the crime scene. However, because friends and family had went to the home prior, they contaminated any type of evidence that they would have been able to use. According to phone records obtained by law enforcement, a phone call had come in that night into Cheryl's home from an unidentified man. This man did end up leaving a voicemail. However, while Stacy's mom was in the home looking for them, she started messing with their answering machine and somehow ended up deleting that voicemail from this guy. However, police felt that there was no connection between this man and their disappearance. 
Days after their disappearance, police end up getting tons and tons of tips. They even had a neighbor of Susie's report that the car was stolen. This person who reported the car stolen was a classmate of Susie and Stacy's. They had put out a bolo for this car and said that this was a burgundy 1987 Supra, but it ends up being no connection to their disappearance. Another tip ends up coming in from a waitress at a local diner that the three of them often went to. She said that she had saw the three women eating there between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. However, law enforcement ended up questioning people that were there at the time, and they had said that they had never seen the women there during those hours. With no leads, zero evidence, no answers, and a really scared town, Springfield law enforcement would end up bringing in the FBI for help. Hey y'all, guess what? I have something super exciting to share with you. Have you ever heard of Unsolved Case Files? It is a murder mystery game that gives you the opportunity to put your armchair detective skills to the test. It is so cool because it's as if you were given a real authentic case file and asked to solve it. The file includes realistic material like witness statements, suspect interrogation notes, newspaper articles, mugshots, and real life like evidence to help you solve the case. Every case file has three different objectives, and after you solve each objective, you get to open an envelope that contains further evidence to help get the case solved. But if your skills aren't as sharp as you thought, no biggie, because you can go online where they offer hints if you get stuck. What I really love about unsolved case files is that it is a really fun group activity. My husband is not big into true crime, but when I bought ours, he was stoked at trying to beat me to solve our first case. And if you're anything like me, a true crime addict and a top-notch armchair detective, then you will think that it'll be a breeze to solve this case. However, to my surprise, it took us two whole date nights to solve our case. Even though it took two nights, it was the most fun date night because it felt like we were going to be able to solve a real case and help bring real justice. It felt so cool opening up the evidence bag it came in. It felt as if I had finally finished my degree and finally got my dream job as a criminal investigator. Unsolved Case Files currently has five different case files and we seriously cannot wait to get our hands on the rest of them to see if we can solve them in less time. I really love that Unsolved Case Files is not one of those subscription boxes where you have to pay monthly in order to get more evidence to solve a case. This gives you everything you need all at one time, giving you the opportunity to solve it in one night. That's if your skills are just that good. I highly recommend putting your skills to the test by going to unsolvedcasefiles.com and ordering your case file today. Even better, you can use my code UCF5CP to get $5 off your purchase. Karmaholics, don't wait. Get those cases solved. Shortly after the Springfield Police Department calls in the FBI for help, law enforcement starts looking into Cheryl's oldest son, Bart. He was 17 years old when he moved out because he stated he did not want to follow the rules that Cheryl had. He had a major drinking problem like many people in their family and she was just worried he was going to end up down the wrong path. Bart stated in his interview on Investigation Discovery that he did not care. He wanted to continue drinking. He did not care what Cheryl had to say, so he decided to just move out. Ten years later, he ends up moving back home to Springfield, Missouri in the fall of 1991. Cheryl and Bart ended up continuing having this rocky relationship over the ten years. After Bart had moved back to town, for whatever reason, Susie decides to move out, and the two of them would get their own apartment together. 
However, shortly after Susie had moved in with Bart, he had stated that he was drinking a lot and one night Susie had come home from the movie theater on a Friday night and Bart was partying, had his music up really loud and Susie had asked him to turn it down and for whatever reason, this ends up just like enraging Bart and the two would end up getting into like a bad physical fight. Because of this fight, Susie ends up moving home and her and Cheryl decide to completely cut him out of their life. So because of this, Bart ends up becoming their number one suspect. The Springfield Police Department and the FBI end up bringing Bart in for questioning and he states that that night he was home drinking and he actually had neighbors to back up his alibi and even passes a polygraph. Law enforcement has even stated that Bart was really cooperative, that they never had any issues with him, he complied to everything that they asked, and so because if they had zero leads with Bart and they had the strong alibi, the police start looking into other people. They decide to start with Susie's past relationships. According to law enforcement, Susie had past relationships with some pretty sketchy people. And one of those people is Dustin Reckla. A few months prior to the disappearance, Susie had actually called it quits with Dustin. She decided to break up with him due to vandalism at a local graveyard that Dustin took part in. Him and his good friend Michael Clay had vandalized a mausoleum at the local graveyard. These sick freaks, not only did they vandalize that mausoleum, which is extremely disrespectful, the next morning, while two young boys were riding their bikes in their town, came across human skulls inside these tree trunks. So these freaks not only vandalized a mausoleum, but they went as far as taking human remains from those mausoleums and placing them in trees. That is the work of a real freaking sicko. Not long after these human skulls were found, a tip came in from a local pawn shop owner. And this owner said that two very young boys came in selling gold teeth. Like in most pawn shops, they always take the ID of the person that came in. And thankfully, this pawn shop owner did do that. And the ID that was used showed the name Michael Clay. Michael and Dustin took the gold teeth out of these human skulls and pawned them for money. Like, their story just keeps getting worse and worse. Like, how disgusting do you have to be to be able to do something like that to somebody's loved one? Because of this, law enforcement end up going over to Michael Clay's home, but when they get there, he's not home. But his parents did let law enforcement in to come take a look at their house. And they end up finding these really weird items in Michael's room. And law enforcement ends up describing these items to look like things that may have been used in a sacrifice or used by somebody who worships the devil. And according to law enforcement, Springfield is known as a huge Bible belt. And so something like that is very unusual for the area and it made them feel really uncomfortable when they saw it. The police end up leaving because Michael was not there, but the next day they come back to the home and all of those items were gone. Prior to Susie leaving Dustin, she actually gave law enforcement testimony, which ended up getting Dustin and Michael both charged with the vandalism. So police felt that they may have had a reason to get rid of Susie, Stacy, and Cheryl. On June 11th, the law enforcement ends up bringing in Dustin and Michael. And during their interrogations, Michael Clay ends up making a really strange statement. He says to the police, I do wish those bitches were dead. Which is a really odd and awful statement to make when you know that they are missing. 
Although Dustin and Michael, of course, both deny any involvement in their disappearance. Dustin stated that he went to go see a band at a local bar that night. And law enforcement said that Michael had some type of same similar alibi, but they were both alibis that could not be confirmed or denied. At this point, law enforcement still has absolutely no leads and no answers to give anybody. However, Michael and Dustin did end up staying persons of interest. However, four weeks later, a tip ends up coming in from a local woman there in Springfield. This woman says she was sitting on her porch swing when a van pulls into her driveway. She says that a woman was driving the van and the woman was very similar to Susie. This woman was crying very heavily and she ends up hearing a man's voice from the back of the van that says, do not do anything stupid, back out of the driveway slowly and get us out of here. This woman said that she did not call the police right away because she did not see their missing poster until weeks later. She said that once she did see the poster, she quickly recognized Susie as the woman who was driving this van. She was able to give great detail about the van that pulled into her driveway. She said it was between a 1964 and a 1970 Dodge panel van. She said it was kind of a silver greenish color, but described it as the color of celery. The police are really adamant about finding out who this van belonged to, so they decided to go and buy a van that was the same model as the one that she described. According to Investigation Discovery, the police bought the van, painted it the same color that she described, and set it outside the police station with a number on it and a sign that said, if you have seen this van or you know who this van belongs to, please give us a call. And right away, tips just started flooding in from local people. The police end up searching thousands of vans, but no solid leads comes of it. So again, they're at a dead end. That was until one night, a family down in Florida was watching the news and saw their story and ends up giving a huge tip to law enforcement. The man that calls ends up giving law enforcement the name Robert Cox. He states that his little sister, Sharon Zellers, was murdered when she was 19 years old by Cox. Sharon Zellers was coming out of her place of work and was abducted and murdered. Robert Cox had plans of joining the military and was going to be leaving for basic training. So before he left, him and his family decided to take a trip down to Florida and stay in the town where Sharon lived. Robert's family stated that one night while they were on vacation, he ends up coming back to their hotel room just like covered in blood and he had like blood just pouring from his mouth. Robert had supposedly bitten off his own tongue. In like sheer panic because of all the blood, his family ends up rushing him to the hospital and there the nurse said that there is no way that Robert had bit off his own tongue because the way that it was bit off was as if somebody else had done it. Not too long after this incident of Robert having to go to the hospital because his tongue was bit off, Sharon Zeller's body would be found only hundreds of feet from Robert's hotel room. The police actually did end up questioning Robert about Sharon Zeller's death due to the fact that they got the tip about his tongue being bitten off and having to go to the hospital. The police were really certain that this man, Robert Cox, had something to do with Sharon's death. However, due to the lack of DNA evidence, he ends up getting away with any possible charges. 
not too long after this, Robert ends up getting stationed out in California. And of course, while he's there, he ends up getting charged with assault on two different women. While he was incarcerated for the charges of assault, he actually ends up being indicted for the murder of Sharon. And he goes to trial and he ends up being found guilty and charged with life. However, the Florida Supreme Court ends up overturning his conviction because they said there was just not enough evidence to be able to convict him. However, according to Investigation Discovery, many jurors have been interviewed since that trial and they all said that they really believed that Robert did kill Sharon Zellers. Because his conviction ends up being overturned, he was extradited back to California and unfortunately in 1992, Robert Cox ends up getting paroled. After being paroled in 1992, Robert ends up moving back to his parents' home where they lived in Springfield, Missouri. The family of Sharon Zellers ends up trying to keep tabs on Robert the best that they can. And they end up finding out that Robert was living in Springfield at the time of their disappearance and they were convinced that he had something to do with it. At this time, Robert worked as an underground utility worker and according to the families of Cheryl, Stacy, and Susie, they kind of felt like, okay, well, that would be a perfect way to get into somebody's house in the middle of the night. You show up in your uniform with a utility truck and say, hey, you got a gas problem. Of course, they're going to let him in. Not only did Robert work as an underground utility worker, it had turned out that he also worked as a mechanic at a used car lot. And this used car lot is the same place where Stacy's dad had worked. According to Stacy's mom, she had went in there a lot to bring her dad dinner and they all felt that maybe Robert had seen Stacy coming and going from the car lot and gained an attraction to her and maybe that this was targeted. However, law enforcement really felt that this was not a planned kidnapping due to the girls changing their plans so last minute on the night that they disappeared. Once law enforcement did receive that tip about Robert, they went straight to his house after looking up his criminal background. They questioned him about where he was the night of their disappearance and Robert stated that he went to a golf tournament by himself. He went back to his parents' home that Saturday night and the next morning on Sunday, he took his girlfriend and her kid to church. And when that girlfriend was questioned by law enforcement, she did state that they all got up very early that next day. Robert picked them up from her home and that they went and attended church. Again, the law enforcement felt that they were at a dead end because this guy also had a really strong alibi, but they did not end up ruling him out as a person of interest either. Three years later, still a dead end, zero answers and no leads. However, that was until March 1995. Robert had been living in Texas and ends up being arrested again for armed robbery. The police decided that they were, for whatever reason, going to question Robert's girlfriend just one more time. When police go to question that girlfriend, she ends up changing her entire story. She says that she actually never attended church with Robert that Sunday morning. She ends up stating to police that a few days after June 7th, 1992, that he came over to her home and told her, if the police are to question you at any point, you tell them that we went to church on Sunday. She said that she went along with it, even though she knew that he had passed crimes, because at the time, she did not know that the three women had disappeared. With this information, these detectives end up going down to Texas in order to question Robert again. 
but he just like won't crack. They had went down there multiple times trying to crack him to see if they could get some type of answers from him, but he was just not having it. He said, I don't know what happened to them. I had nothing to do with it and left it at that. However, a TV interview person gives a try at Robert and he ends up opening up to this TV interview person and gives them some answers. He says, He knows that they're dead. He knows that whoever did this was going to try hard to get rid of them, but then doesn't give any more answers. But because there's no real evidence really backing up what Robert had told this TV interview person, the police just kind of leave it there and the case goes cold. Even though there was no real solid leads, of course, when three women go missing at the same time in a small town, there's going to be lots of rumors and there's going to be things said. One of the rumors that floated around a lot was that the three women were possibly buried underneath a parking garage at Cox Hospital. And I do want to point out that Robert Cox has nothing to do with this hospital. In 2007, 15 years after their disappearance, a local journalist there in Springfield who had covered the story from the beginning ends up reaching out to a mechanical engineer named Rick Norland. Rick Norland is well known because during 9-11, he was called out to help dig through debris. He made this machine for ground penetrating radar and this specific machine helps locate things that are buried underground or is able to tell if there's like cracks or holes underneath the ground. The journalist wanted Rick Norland to come out to Springfield and she wanted him to scan that south parking garage at the hospital. She wanted to be able to put this rumor to rest or to be able to find the women and this machine was going to be able to tell if there's any type of abnormalities underneath the cement. However, because the police deemed his machine just like not credible because he made it himself and because the pictures were not very clear law enforcement just said no like we're not messing with it you're on your own so the local journalist and rick ends up going out to this south parking garage at the hospital and lo and behold when they scanned a certain corner of this parking garage he picks up three abnormalities these abnormalities were about the same exact size to each other. They were found very shallow under the ground. He said that two of them were laying side by side horizontally and one was laying underneath the two vertically. But even with that information, the police said, no, we're not gonna mess with it. They said that ground penetrating radar machines just aren't conclusive enough. Law enforcement also stated because the parking garage was built one year after their disappearance, there was just no way that they were there. However, even though the parking garage was not fully built at the time of their disappearance, it was still under construction and not completed, which means it could have been super easy for somebody to put their bodies there. Although the police initially said that they were not going to dig because the machine was not credible, the family just begs and begs and begs for them to dig under that concrete. So on December 1st, 2010, the police come out publicly and said that they ended up deciding to dig underneath that concrete. However, shortly after making the statement that they were going to dig up that concrete to see if their bodies were there, police came back out and said that due to the cost, they were not going to do the dig. They said that they did not have enough credible evidence that their bodies were actually there. And so they just decided not to do it. Which is totally crazy to me because you would think that human life is more important than money. But I guess not because as of right now, they still have not dug that area of the South Parking Garage at Cox Hospital. 
According to a recent article by Springfield News Leader, law enforcement continues to get tips on the case, but they are not any closer to solving the disappearance of Susie Streeter, Stacy McCall, and Cheryl Levitt. If you or anyone you know has any information on the disappearance of the Springfield 3, you are encouraged to call the Springfield, Missouri Police Department at 417-864-1700. If you have not already, I highly encourage you to join our Crimeaholics podcast discussion group on Facebook or follow us on Instagram where we will have pictures of Susie, Stacy, and Cheryl. Crimeaholics, as always, be aware and take care. (music) 